Well, welcome to Christ the King, and those of you uh, watching on YouTube, thank you for joining us this morning, and I hope that if you are watching on the, on the internet, that you'll like and share and do all the YouTube things. It helps us reach more people, and uh, uh, there are folks that are watching from all over the country, so we're really excited about that, and we welcome all of you that are here in person in worship. Uh, we know that uh, the virus is continuing in about half of our country to surge, and it's not going away anytime soon. So uh, we need to buckle down and help each other and serve one another. Uh, wear your masks uh, when you're speaking, as Dawson said, to others. Uh, but during the sermon, you're welcome to take them off if you feel comfortable uh, doing so. Um, past few weeks, we've been talking about this phenomenon that... Uh, happens along the coast. They're called riptides, and they can catch you and carry you along the sides of the, uh, of the, of the ocean through the uh, uh, coastline. And generally, a riptide will not pull you down, but it takes you sideways. And the way people die in a riptide is that they try to swim against the tide, and they exhaust themselves, and they end up drowning. Uh, one of the things I tell you, when I moved to Florida, I learned all this. I'd never been around an ocean, so I had to learn all the particulars of the, of the ocean, uh, at least up to about six feet, because I wouldn't go any further. I didn't want my head underwater if I could help it. So uh, they tell you if you get caught in a riptide and you feel it carrying you away, that you're just to relax and care, let it carry you until you feel the current let go, and then you can start to swim towards the shore. Problem is, sometimes the riptides will carry you out where you lose your horizon. You don't see the shore anymore, and it really becomes scary. And I gave you a story about a father and son caught in one of these. And so for the next uh, few months, or weeks at least, we're going to look at different people in the Bible who get caught up in these riptides. Uh, we looked at Moses for a couple of weeks. Uh, he got kicked out of Egypt because he murdered someone. And he fled into the wilderness and lived there for 40 years. And God interrupted uh, his life with a pattern of redemption that I think we see throughout the Scripture. Now, the pattern doesn't always happen exactly the same, but all of the elements are basically there. This pattern of redemption that God shows when we are swept away. Now, we've been swept away by a global pandemic, a collapse of the economy. There's bitterness and anger and hatred in our country that we have never seen for probably several generations. You'd have to go back to the civil rights era uh, to find the kind of polarization and hatred that we see going on. And what concerns me is that this hatred and these polarizations we see have made their way into the church. And my job is to tell you, no, we cannot allow those riptides in our culture to tear us apart. Our single and uttermost allegiance is to a king, not a president, not a political party, not a flag, not a nation, but to a king. And if we bow the knee to this king, when he comes and interrupts our life, we will become excellent citizens of our nation, no matter which way it goes. And we don't have to be afraid and wringing our hands at every moment, worried about who's going to get elected or who's not. Go vote. 
Be involved in your community. But Jesus said, do not fear. A riptide can cause great distress. I mean, you lose the horizon and panic can set in. And so our job here at the church is to uh, encourage you not to let that happen. We're going to read this morning a very wonderful passage of Scripture. Um, it's in Mark chapter 5. It's, all, it's in all the Gospels and uh, the, all three of the synoptic, what we call synoptic Gospels, not in John. Uh, but it's a wonderful story. So in Mark chapter 5, let's read the story about Jairus, his daughter, and this woman who has an issue of blood. We're going to start at verse 21. Jesus has just come back from uh, being across the Sea of Galilee and where he healed a demoniac, a man who was possessed by the devil. So picking up here in verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what he said, they said, Jesus said to the ruler, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so what gets you into a riptide? This 
is a riptide. This man's daughter is sick and she is dying and he's caught up in that. And in between this incident with the man comes this woman who has also been caught up in a riptide that has wrecked and ruined her life for 12 years. What gets you into these riptides? Well, the first week we started talking about this, I told you the original riptide, the first one, was mankind's step into sin, our embrace of the serpent rather than the Lord of life. Believing the word of the serpent rather than the word of our God. And that caught humanity in this riptide where we lost every horizon. And it takes God coming in and interrupting that. In fact, you see this pattern throughout Scripture where God interrupts. You don't find people in the Bible out looking for Him. They're looking for God and gods, but they're not looking for the God of the Bible. And so it takes him interrupting him, coming into their lives from somewhere, wherever they are in their life, and interrupting them. And I think if we stopped here, as I've said, and we started talking, and each of you gave your story, there would be a moment in time where God interrupted you. If you're older, maybe He just interrupted you when you're, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, a teenager. I was 18 when He interrupted me. Or maybe you were born into a family where they've just raised you in the Christian faith. That, that itself is an interruption. Thank God you were born into a family that could raise you that way and expose you to the gospel at the very beginning. Well, what gets us into the riptides as life goes on? Well, listen, selfishness is one. An over-desire, lust, what the Bible calls epithumia, an over-desire for things where we do what is in Romans 1, we suppress the truth and we replace it with a lie. This is the great sin of mankind. You can find it in anything. You can do it with good things. You can, take, you can actually take church and doctrine and theology and serving people and all kinds of good things and replace God with them. Not doing them out of a heart for service, but doing them as the thing itself. And we lose sight of the horizon. Foolishness. You know, if you walk up to the ocean and there's signs up there that say, do not get in the water today uh, because there's uh, riptides, you know, the fool says, hey, I'm, I'm in Florida. And they out into the, the ocean they go. Unwittingly stepping into circumstances that are beyond our control. We do it all the time. Arrogance, pride, saying, you know, I can do this. I have Nike theology. I, God's with me. I, can, I don't need to wear a mask. Nothing's going to happen to me. No, nothing will happen to you, but it might happen to me. Keep your mask on. I don't want to get your coronavirus. That's how we, we slip into pride and arrogance and we start saying things like, I can overcome. I can do this. I can, I can resist the current. Maybe it will take other people out beyond the horizon, but not me. I have control. There's also blindness. That's just, you know, ignoring all the signs, all the warnings, and just charging out into the surf. And, and you don't even know what's out there waiting for you. There's also something called brinkmanship. I've talked about this before. Brinkmanship is where, when I first learned about 
riptides, we would go out into the, and there on the coast of Florida, there are these sandbars, and the sandbars are, you know, maybe knee-high, thigh-high, you know, waist-high. Then they dip down, they get about six feet, sometimes 10, 12 feet. There's a a ridge, and then the next uh, sandbar. And so we would go out there, and you could feel the riptides pulling and really pulling against you. And so we'd go get into the deeper part and lift our legs up, and man, it would just sweep you off. Uh, That's brinkmanship, because how do I know it's going to land me on another sandbar? Maybe it's going to take me out to the Atlantic Ocean, uh, to the Canary Islands, or Portugal, or somewhere. (laughs) Who knows where it's going to take you? But that's, you know, we're playing around, feeling the strength of the ocean, but you know you can stand up, you're safe, unless there's no ground to stand on. Amazing. Brinkmanship. And then just life in general, what we call God's providence, just his, the daily life. Or it could be some combination of these. could be some combination, and most of the time it's a combination. When people read their Bibles, we just read this story about Jairus and this woman, we think these are examples of how we are to behave. These are written so that we will know how to behave. And that's true to an extent. They are examples of how to behave and maybe how not to behave. But behind it, and more importantly, is there's a pattern of redemption. Are these biographies examples of behavior to follow or avoid or examples of redemption? And I would argue, while the other two are true, avoid and follow these examples, they are also examples of redemption. Not what you do when the riptide takes you, but what God does, what His Son Jesus does when you're caught in the riptide and you cannot save yourself. These are examples of what He will do. Look for the pattern of redemption. And and any of you that didn't get it last few weeks, I'll give it to you uh, quickly again, just part of it. But there's, this is it. Basically, God interrupts. Then He speaks words of intimacy and kindness and tenderness. Sometimes a little stern. He can be very stern when He's calling somebody. But He draws them in. He expands exposes himself, self-disclosure. He shows them who he is. And then he invites them to be with him, to enter into a relationship uh, with him. So let's look at these. Look at the first riptide, the first one, Jairus. My little daughter is at the point of death. This is a sudden occurrence. It's urgent. It's desperate. In fact, uh, some, of the, some of the translations say death is at the door. It wasn't like she just had a cold. She was ready to die. She was in extremities. And this caused the father to leave her side and go to find Jesus. His horizon is lost. The mother, obviously. Horizon is lost. Family, the little girl who knows what kind of shape. She seemed like she was like really sick. And this is a man whose social status, you know, he's got a name uh, over against the woman who we'll see in a moment. She doesn't even have, she's not even named. He has high social status. He's a religious leader. He has presumably some economic status, respectability, power, and influence. He comes right up to Jesus and all. He falls on his feet. He shows an appropriate amount of humility. 
But he comes right up to the master and said, Come, rescue my daughter. Please come. And this is what you need to see, the pattern of redemption. Jesus went. Immediately He went. And let me tell you, if you're caught in a riptide and you call on Him, He immediately will come. You say, well, you know, I called on Him and I haven't seen anything. Well, you know what? Immediately He is there. He's not waiting for an hour to come show up. He shows up. Now what happens after that? He asks you one thing. One thing does He ask you. Trust me. Will you trust me? But my daughter, will you trust me? And so Jairus, to his credit, he follows him. He expresses his faith. This man, Jairus, this religious leader, openly, he's voluble, he uh, makes the request in public, he humbles himself. And this crowd that's around Jesus is gathering. There's all kinds of motives in the crowd. Hey, let's go see a miracle. Let's go watch the show. And off they go. Some of them maybe were, were truly impressed and wanted to, to be part of this uh, event. Whatever the case is, off the crowd goes. But here's the riptide. Jairus' status, his respectability, his power, his influence, all of that, folks, listen, it is, it's helpless in the face of sickness and death. Helpless, hopeless, powerless. There's nothing that can be done. And that's what these riptides are in people's lives, what they are in your life. No one saw coronavirus coming. No one saw the collapse of the stock market and all the crazy. And we're in a new, we're in a new world. And if you think we're going to go back to normal, we're not. And it's going to be important for the church to rise up, stand up, let your light shine before men because we're in a time of judgment, a time of testing. Oh, globally. And this is the time when we must trust our Lord in this riptide and the riptides that come in our everyday life. Whatever they are. These, there's no hope Jairus set his hope on Christ, and off they go. And here in the middle, look at verses 25 through 29. This is the next section about the woman. This woman has been suffering for 12 years with an issue of blood. Now, I don't need to get into the details, but she has been hemorrhaging. Um, and, and this would have made her ceremonially unclean. She could not have gone to church for the past 12 years. She couldn't have gotten in a, a room like this. She would have had to stay away. She would probably have lost her family. She couldn't have been around. And I don't know what her family was doing, but she would have made her whole household unclean. Her status, she's not even named. All her money is gone and her condition is getting worse and worse. This woman has been carried away by a riptide, but this is a different kind. This isn't sudden. It's not just the little girl falling sick and you know rushing to see Jesus. No, this is someone who has suffered. She's been out, imagine this, she's been out in the ocean floating with no horizon for 12 years. No one. She can't touch anybody because touching them makes them unclean. 
She's got to stay away from no contact. You think we're having a hard time in coronavirus? This woman lived with it 12 years. She couldn't touch anybody, couldn't get around anybody. She was completely socially and religiously outcast. Horrific. Now, six months we've been without a lot of contact, and it's hard. Listen, I'm talking to my dog like he understands me, and he doesn't. He's a boxer and he's a knucklehead. But, you know, think about this. Completely destitute. A social and religious outcast. And she does not come up to Jesus and ask for anything. She can't. She doesn't dare touch Him. She doesn't dare stretch out her hand and touch even the hem of His garment. She doesn't dare because if she's caught... It would be a criminal offense in Israel at that time. She has to come surreptitiously, stealthily behind Jesus without anybody in a crowd so hopefully no one will see her and reach out and touch the hem of His garment. She can't ask Him. She doesn't. She just goes in for it. If I could just touch Him. When I was a little kid, I grew up in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and there's a beautiful liturgy. Absolutely, I miss it a lot, and I think the church loses a lot by not uh, looking to the aesthetics of beauty. Uh, but in a Presbyterian church, I'd get fired. That's funny. Okay, never mind. If I brought incense and started doing this, I'd, you know, I'd get fired. But the priest would come in during the great procession uh, with all the altar boys. I used to be one of those altar boys and we'd carry the cross and he had the wine and the host, the uh, bread and he would come out and they would be chanting and smoking. I mean, it was a big deal. And he'd come out a side door and make his route through the church and then he'd go down the center aisle and there's all this chanting and carrying on. And he would always stop. His name was Father Husson, Nicholas Husson. He would stop by the old ladies on the, they would, some of these old grandmas, in fact, on my dad's grandmother, wasn't it your grandmother was one of them, and a couple other ladies, as soon as he came out, they would kneel. These are old ladies, 80, 100, 200 years old, I don't know, they were old. And they would get down on their knees, and he would always stop right next to them, and they would take the hem of his garment, you know, they're in these magnificent robes, uh, gold embroidered and all this stuff, and they would kiss the robe. And I was a little kid. My grandmother would put me up on the pew so that I could watch. And I always remember those women getting on their knees. I didn't know what they were doing. They were expressing their faith in the priest who represented Jesus. Now to Protestants, you know, we we start breaking out in hives over that stuff. But don't let it bother you. Just stop for a minute and think. How amazing that is. If I just touch, I will be well. Dr. William Hendrickson in his commentary, I love this, he says this. Listen, by the time this woman finally decided to cast her lot with Jesus, she had spent all her money, she had lost her health, her wealth, and because of the nature of her illness, also her standing in society particularly, get this, particularly in the religious community because of the cleanly, uncleanness laws. Her condition was such 
that it would have made her ceremonially unclean. And anybody she touched would become ceremonially unclean. Like Jairus, in every way, this woman is hopeless and helpless. She's an outcast. Something interesting happens very quickly. If you look at verses 30 through 34, this is where Jesus has his dialogue with her. And I hope you're seeing the patterns of interruption. Jesus interrupts Jairus. He interrupts the woman. And then he starts inviting them. He tells Jairus, let's go. He goes with him. He tells this woman, Look at what happens here in these verses. He perceives power has gone out of him and he he knows something has happened. And by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where this phrase is used, perceiving of power going out of him. And he says, who touched me? The disciples question him. They're almost mocking him. He ignores them and he's looking for the woman. He wants to find the woman. I, I can hardly go on. He finds her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And you could write in your Bible, your faith in me has made you well. Why can you write that in your Bible if you wanted to? Why the emphasis on in me? Because it says in the text she had been to doctors. She'd been to who knows who, knows who she had been to. She spent all her money. And no one could make her well. He's not highlighting her faith. He's highlighting himself. And he's inviting her. He says, daughter, a term of endearment. And go into peace. Go in peace or go into peace. Be healed of this disease. Go into peace. Be made well of your social outcast, certainly. And also the disease. You know, I believe that any time we pray for someone, God heals them. Do you all believe that? Every time. 100% of the time. Everybody okay with that? No? I didn't think so because this is a Presbyterian church. We don't really believe in that stuff. Your minister does. I believe he heals every single time we pray. The only question is when. Sometimes Sometimes he heals right now. It's amazing. Sometimes... In the resurrection. If we pray for somebody to come back from the dead, they'll come back from the dead. He hears our prayers. He listens to our cries for mercy. He answers us. And our scope, our eyes have got to get out of this world and into the eternal world of of God's glory and goodness. If you believe that that Jesus rose from the dead, then that takes time and stretches it out into eternity. Amen? Amen. All right. Jesus heals her physically and her social stigma. Now here comes another riptide. It's like almost he gets out of, Jairus gets out of the first one. Here comes another one. Look at verse 35 through 38. It's like a punch in the gut, you know. Here comes a messenger. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And before the guy can say anything... Jesus overhears them and He says to him, Do not fear, 
only believe. This is so glorious, folks. It's like he said, daughter to the woman. And here he draws in close to Jairus. He says, I know you're afraid. I know that you have doubts. I know that, that this is the, most, the worst news you could possibly have gotten. And he takes Jairus and makes him focus on his Savior. Makes him look there. Only believe. Look. Look at me in the eye. Don't look at death. Why is all this commotion? He's, he, now he's going to show everybody who he is. Why the commotion? She is not dead. She's only asleep. Now there are some denominations that have taken this and come up with these doctrines of soul sleep and all that. That is not what's going on here. Jesus is using language to explain something about death. Death is a riptide. It's going to take everyone in this room. All of us are going to go. Every one of us is going to end up in the grave. Every single one of us will die. No one has ever escaped death. No one. And so in this time of death, Jesus says no to death. No, she is not dead. She's asleep. Death may take everyone else away, but not me. To me, death is nothing more than sleep, and I will wake her up. Talitha kumi. This is, this is so beautiful it, to take your breath away. It's like you're, I don't know if you have kids, you, you know, you come in in the morning and you, you kind of wake them and you say, My sweetheart, uh, my, my darling, my little one, my little child, time to wake up. Time to wake up. Folks, this is raw power in the face of death. This is to stir your soul. And you say, wow, this is a king. Even death cannot hold him. It's nothing but sleep. It's like waking me up in the morning. Wake up. J. Iris is an important person. This woman is a nobody. But both of them, folks, look at our lives. Both, I don't care if you, have the mo- if you have more money than Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. It will, not, it will not cure your cancer. It will not raise you from the dead. It will not fix your broken life, your broken marriage, your broken health, your broken country, your broken world. It won't. And God didn't say just, you know, hold on dear, for your dear life until heaven comes. We're not even, we're not made for heaven. We're made for the earth. Heaven is coming here. We're not going to go there. We're only going to go there temporarily. Then we're coming back here. This is our home. And God means to make it right. And the resurrection is about that. And this sign and seal, Talitha Kumi, wake up. It's okay. I and the one who hold the power of life and death. Jairus and the woman. This is the point, folks. When you're in a riptide, when something catches you away, people will often come. They'll come to Dawson or me or one of our elders or someone else uh, of, of some spiritual authority, and they'll say, oh, I wish I had more faith. More faith. Oh, if I just had your kind of faith. You don't want my kind of faith. Believe me. 
If I just had more faith. No, I always tell people, you don't need more faith. You need more Jesus in your life. Get your eyes off your faith and start looking at Him for goodness sakes. Don't have faith in your faith. Have faith in your Savior. Put your eyes on Him. Fill the horizon with Him. Yeah, but what? No, don't but nothing. Look, fill your life with Him. Fix your eyes, He tells Jairus. Look here. He tells the woman, daughter, your faith has made you, faith in me has made you well. Find that horizon. We can't, Christians can lose their horizon so quick, it just amazes me. I'm your pastor and I'm telling you, you've got to have that true horizon, that Savior, because your faith is only as good as the person that you're placing it in. I've shared this with you before, but A.W. Tozer wrote a great book called The Pursuit of God. It's a classic. And uh, in his chapter, he has a whole chapter on faith. And I pulled this little excerpt out. And I hope you'll bear with me. It just takes a minute to read. Listen to this. If you listen to this, it can change the entire way you think about faith. Believing is directing the heart's attention to Jesus lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing to behold Him the rest of our lives. At first it may be difficult, but becomes easier as we look steadily at His wondrous person quietly and without strain. Distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to Him after each brief excursion away from Him, the attention will return again and rest upon Him like a wandering bird coming back to its window. Faith, listen, Faith is the least regarding, the least self-regarding of the virtues. It is by very nature scarcely conscious of itself. Like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself. Faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests. And pays no attention to itself at all. While we are looking at God, we do not see ourselves. And then he says, blessed riddance. If I could just get rid of it, if I could get myself out of the way and fill my horizon with Jesus Christ, my faith will move a mountain. Listen, he goes on. Those who have struggled to purify themselves and have had nothing but repeated failure, does that sound familiar, will experience real true relief when they stop tinkering with their souls and look away to the perfect one. In every instance, Jesus does say to people, your faith has made you well, but He's talking about faith in Him not their faith in itself. That will not help you. Everybody has faith in something. But your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. That's what Tozer is saying. How do you do that? Look at verse 30 again. This loss of power. He perceives that power has gone out of him. 
Who touched me? You know, folks, I've got to wrap it up here, but listen very carefully. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before any of this happened, prophet Isaiah talked about a suffering servant who would come and he said, this one came, he bore our iniquities, he carried our griefs. By his, by his wounds we are made well, we are restored. He is swept away on the cross. Our Savior Jesus carried out beyond every horizon we know this because he cries out to God, why, why have you forsaken me? He is out in the deep, dark ocean of death and hell and the grave and there is no rescue for him. No one to come and get him. No one to save him from death. He was the one who was born in a manger clean and when unclean people touch him, they become clean. Instead of the reverse. Dead people were considered unclean. You couldn't touch a dead person. No, Jesus comes and touches the dead person, the dead little girl, and she becomes alive. How? How does that happen? It happens because on the cross, the roles are reversed. You never have to lose your horizon, my friends. Never. If you fill your life with Jesus Christ, you don't have to lose the horizon. And nothing can sweep you away. And when you do get swept away, as we all do from time to time, stop tinkering with your faith and other things and return to your first love. Return to the Savior and He will rescue you because He earned it. Jesus was cast out and forsaken so that we could draw in and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do you believe that? Will you believe it? Will you trust Him? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, uh, our lives uh, take us over sometimes. The things that happen, dark, dark providences that are unexplainable. And all you ever ask of anyone is to trust you. And I pray that in this small church, our little congregation here will become a group of people who trust you deeply no matter what happens that we will become truly broken before the glory of our Savior and our King. And at this time in our history, this redemptive moment, we will look for You, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to Your grace. Amen.